Uh, what that means is not terror, and I don't mean the kind of hung parliament terror uh, or the last general, ele- the general election kind of terror. Of course, our question today uh, is far more specific and refers to the recent attacks by radical Islamists. But let me begin, if I can, by making a few kind of quick clarifications. What we are not going to do to begin with. Um, I am not going to try and claim the moral high ground uh, for Christians and point the finger at other world views, other world religions. Christians in history are not above reproach with regard to acts of terror, neither Buddhists, Sikhs, Muslims, any world religion. And if there are perhaps atheists and agnostics amongst us, please be careful not to sit too tall in your chairs as well. It would be salient to recall, wouldn't it, that in the name of no God, which is of course, your religion, your faith. Uh, more people have been killed in the last hundred years in the name of any God, if you put that all together. Secondly, just so you're aware, I'm not going to focus on the facts and the details of the three terror attacks. The details are grim, if you looked at them. Um, and I think that is all we need to know, that they were grim. Let's begin, therefore. Uh, I think... Firstly, we want to begin by acknowledging very simply that what has happened is truly disgusting and is terribly sad. And I'm saying that not simply because it's the right thing to say or the expected thing to say. I'm not a politician in that way. I'm saying that simply because it's a true description of the events of the last few weeks. They've rightly been described as terror attacks. They terrorise us as a population, of course, to varying degrees. I think hopefully we'll see why later. Because when people see unexpected death, it can drive terror into our hearts. And those who witnessed, of course, those events on London Bridge just a week ago, as they saw them firsthand, they will struggle for years in what they have seen. I remember seeing someone die in front of me aged 15, and I don't think I slept through a night for about five years. But the way by which people were attacked on last week was far more traumatising, and we must pray that they receive the professional support they need over the coming years. So what do we do? Should we just kind of keep calm and carry on, as some have sort of flippantly kind of posted and hashtagged in various kind of social media things? One reporter, BBC a reporter, rightly said, looking at all these kind of you know, very trite comments and keep calm, carry on and so on, he just said that seems such an inadequate thing to say in these moments. I think he's right. How should we respond, therefore, appropriately? What are the, uh, uh, the appropriate expectations as we look to the future? Where should we go for wisdom and direction? Now, as Christians, of course, we will want to turn to the wisdom of God in the Bible. I'm not going to make any excuses for doing that uh, in just a moment. But as we do so, as we examine this question together, I want us to do so critically. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I hope you've been made to feel very welcome. I'm sure you might have found various parts, you know, singing, praying, a little bit odd. But that's what we do. We love and want to devote ourselves to God. And we will do it in those ways. But whatever your religion, whatever your worldview, as we open up the Bible in a moment to hear his wisdom that's been lovingly revealed to us, I do want you to be critical. I want you to scrutinise the Bible and what it says on these matters. But at the same time, if you consider yourself rational, fair, 
relatively intelligent and so on. Can I ask you to scrutinise the Christian faith? Maybe. But as you do so, scrutinise your own faith, your own worldview. Apply the same level of scrutiny to your own thinking. And understand that if you're not willing to do that, and Christians, it's a good question to always ask uh, those who aren't, don't believe in, in the Christian faith. If people aren't willing to scrutinise their own worldviews in the same way they scrutinise the Christian faith, you have to ask them to concede in their own heart that they are being bigoted. Because they're applying a level of intolerance uh, to, to others that they would not be happy with if it was applied to them. So the question today, uh, where is God when terror strikes? Now, as we look at this together through the lens of God's word, the Bible, as Christians, of course, we're very, very happy and comfortable with that. We put our faith in a speaking God who reveals himself ultimately through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, but then by his spirit and through his inspired word, the Bible. But some are far from comfortable with that approach. And the assumption in the question of the existence of God, well, some will look at our question today and argue that the events of last week and the last few weeks actually show that God doesn't exist at all. Where is God when terror strikes? Well, many, including you know, notable comedians like Russell Howard and, uh, and Stephen Fry, have been very, very quick uh, to use events, as we've seen over the last few weeks, to answer that question very, very loudly. They're saying, oh, God is nowhere. They would argue that God, who claims to be all-powerful and all-loving in his word, cannot exist if he allows events like this to take place. And they argue this as a proof of their faith in the existence of no God. They would say an all-powerful God, oh, they would have stopped what happened on London Bridge last week. Uh, and that he didn't shows that either he is not all-powerful or maybe that he is all-powerful. But at that moment, he just likes terrible stuff to happen and therefore he cannot be all-loving. It's a very old and it's a very well-worn argument. And like petulant playground bullies do, it's often shouted very, very loudly without any opportunity to give a meaningful response. But respond to it, we will. Where is God when terror strikes? Now, I'm going to examine this question in perhaps a slightly different way than you might expect. Not because I can't rationally argue against such claims. It is a kind of broken record argument. Often people never really want to hear a rational response. And therefore, if you want that kind of philosophical kind of banter and argument uh, in response to the, yeah, God doesn't exist because terror strikes happen, can I point you to C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem with Pain? He wrote it uh, defending the existence of God in the light of suffering. I would be happy to buy you a copy. It is a very coherent, logical argument against those claims that God can't exist in the light of terror and suffering. But let's be clear, we're not going to avoid the question this morning. But we are going to examine it because I want you to have our faces rubbed in the text of Scripture. I want you to see the answer to the question in and through the life of Jesus Christ. And why am I doing it this way? 
because Jesus claimed and demonstrated himself to be the Son of God, a claim that, of course, even his worst enemies who put him to death could not deny. A claim, of course, that is central to our faith, Christian faith. And if you don't believe it, yeah, I kind of get that. Which is why I want you to, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to rub your face in Jesus, in the pages of Scripture, looking at the historical evidence, reading an eyewitness account, which is exactly what we're about to do. We heard this eyewitness account read earlier in two sections. It's from John's Gospel. And, you, you know, if you're not a Christian, again, you, you might just sort of sit here and go, well, it's miraculous. Oh, I'm going to push it aside. It can't happen. It's, it's not history. And you're sceptical. But please note, if you just cast your eyes down to verse 9 of the many witnesses who gathered with Mary and Martha, I just want you to point one thing out before we dive into it a little bit more. If this didn't happen, as written here, with all of those eyewitnesses, Well, they would have been speaking and writing about the fraudulent claims of Jesus regarding this situation of raising Lazarus from the dead. There would be, history shows us there would be, an alternative history contrary to this, saying that this is wrong, saying that this is fraudulent. The problem you have is there isn't a contrary history. Conclusion, historically, this happened. So as we look at this account, seeing how Jesus, the Son, of God, the Son of God, responds in a moment of unexpected death and terror. I hope that will show us how God responds to such events. At the end, I'm going to try and make some applications. I'll do that as we go through. And we'll have some time for questions, I hope, at the end as well. Now, just so you know, our normal diet here at Christchurch Service, well, many of you will know this, we, we, we tend to look at passages and, and we go through books of the Bible and we go through verse by verse in a consecutive way. I think that's the most helpful way to look at the scripture and it's definitely uh, the most kind of faithful way to approach the word of God. But given time, what I'm going to do is simply point out four things of what we see about Jesus in this situation of terror and death. Let me quickly summarise the story first, if I may. We've heard it just a few moments ago, but we see at the beginning that Lazarus is ill. He dies. Jesus hears, sorry, Lazarus is ill, but Jesus hears and remains where he is for two more days. We see that right at the beginning in the first five, six verses. Now, by the time that Jesus gets there, of course, Lazarus is dead. He's been in the grave four days. We get some kind of graphic details about odours as well. And there are many witnesses to the fact Interestingly, as you come to this story, you see two prominent women, Mary and Martha, and they have the same problem. It's the same problem I guess many of us will have as well. Where is God? Where is Jesus when such a terrible thing happens? In verse 21, you'll see that Martha questions Jesus about this. The same question comes from Mary as well in verse 32. Jesus where were you? you know, where, where's God in London Bridge, Manchester Arena? You can hear the same kind of sentiment in these women, can't you? And what does Jesus do? And how does he respond? I think we have four things that we can see in this situation of death and terrible heartache that we can learn from 
And I hope they help us respond to what we're seeing around us appropriately because here we see God in human flesh respond to the terrible shock and sadness of death and terror around him. I hope it goes some way in answering the question that we have too. Four things, therefore, quickly. There are tears. There's truth. We see anger in Jesus and he offers us grace. Tears, truth, anger and grace. Firstly, tears. Not necessarily in in an order, but I'm just going to go through them uh, quickly if I can. Tears. When Jesus saw the grief of the women and went uh, to see where Lazarus had been laid, look at verse 35. It is the shortest verse in the Bible. Verse 35 simply says, Jesus wept. The one who is uh, known for speaking with such power and authority as you go through the gospel accounts. Here in the midst of suffering and death, we see he can't speak. Rather, Jesus, the Son of God, weeps. Did you read it? As that was read to you, did you, did you recognise how strange that was? Jesus weeps and yet he knows every detail of this situation. He knows why this has happened. We get a clue of that back in verse 4, don't we? That so God's Son may be glorified through it. And so he knows what's going on. He, he knows every detail. He knows the purpose of this. He knows what he's about to do as well. He even knows that those already weeping will be rejoicing in just maybe a few minutes. So why on earth does he weep? We can understand, can't we, the weeping of Mary and Martha. That's pretty obvious. Likewise, we can understand the weeping of those who have lost loved ones, who have been injured over the last few weeks. We can understand that kind of weeping. They weep in loss. But they also weep in their inability to change the situation. Uh, You see, by contrast, Jesus... He can change everything in this situation. But he still weeps. A week ago, I guess many of us were numb and shocked by the events on London Bridge. What about this Sunday, though? You may be numb again after staying up probably too late and watching some general election stuff. But it is amazing how quickly we move on, isn't it? We watch the news, but many of us can't invest our hearts and our minds too much in the details of terror attacks that happen just four or five miles away. Why is that? It's far too burdensome, isn't it? We don't want to be on one extreme like the... Did you see the Saudi Arabian football team as they kind of played Australia? Australia was an Australian who died on London Bridge and they kind of gathered around the centre circle and they had a minute of silence and respect to honour uh, one of the uh, people who had died. What did the Saudi Arabian football team do? They totally ignored it and they carried on kicking balls around. They weren't going to show respect to remember and honour the dead. We don't want that end of the extreme, do we? But we also don't want to be on the other end. We don't want to be overburdened. We don't want to think too much about the implications of the tragedies that have happened. And so what do we do? We so often, very, very quickly, think it's only a week away. 
We just shut our hearts down from fear of getting hurt and overwhelmed. C.S. Lewis puts it this way in his book, The Four Loves. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. Oh, it will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. I'm not saying that we don't love. But understand Jesus here. He is demonstrating in this situation of death and terror, he's demonstrating a perfect love. He weeps as he sees others weeping. He weeps at the loss of a friend. He weeps in empathy and loss in love. There's nothing wrong with weeping. There's no lack of maturity or lack of faith when someone just weeps. The problem, I guess, is that we feel utterly helpless. We want to fix things. We want to mend people. I mean, how many guys went to bed thinking, oh, if only I was there, you know, like kind of a, a bit like 24, you know, shit, I'd be fine, yeah. We want to fix stuff. We want to restore what was broken. And the problem is we can't. But despite that, we must not run and lock our hearts in a coffin of selfishness. Note that Jesus here, he doesn't, you know, he, he, he doesn't run from this situation of pain and suffering. Rather, what does he do? He enters it completely and responds with perfect love. Now, if you want to know the nature of God and his love, well, we look at Jesus in the words of Scripture. So Christians, how do we respond? Now is not the time to run from London, is it? Even if there is a string of terror attacks, and I wouldn't be surprised if there are, and more and more and more people die at the hands of Islamic extremists, we need to be here, weeping with those who weep. Now, of course, there are many, many practical things as well. We must encourage justice and the, the, uh, the police and the secret services to do all that they must do. But we must not miss the chance to love. Jesus weeps with Mary, tears of perfect love. But it's interesting, he does something incredibly different, strikingly different with Martha. I don't know if you saw that. Let's go into the second thing. It's not tears here time, this time, but it's truth. Look how Jesus responds in verse 25 to Martha. Same question, if you remember. Where are you? And it feels now like a sermon is being preached. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. I mean, if you just take that on itself, it feels quite cold, doesn't it? End of verse 26, he chances, do you believe this? Jesus responds to this terrible news with truth. Truth which provides the answer to the very things that are causing Mary to cry and Martha to question. Truth that is received, of course, through faith. 
She must believe that Jesus is offering new life, that he is the resurrection, eternal life. And if she does not believe, she does not receive. Notice that Jesus doesn't offer just kind and empty platitudes. He speaks truth into her life. And he offers resurrection. I wonder, did you see the... uh, the concert, the One Love uh, Manchester concert last week, uh, organised by Ariane de Grande. I haven't a clue who she was before last week, but I found out a new thing. I felt like I got younger uh, in so doing. Uh, anyway, there was an awesome lineup. You know, I, I, as a musical, I like my music. I, I really, really enjoyed it. But did you notice the choice of songs by all the artists? Basically, they went through their whole kind of di- discography, their, all their songs. And they, there they did, and they, they got anything that has any kind of religious overtones, quasi kind of religious, let's sing that one. We'll put a bit of a new rearrangement to it, but let's sing that one. So what did we have? We have Angels by Robbie Williams, who couldn't sing very well at all, but there we go. He got all the crowds singing. I'd love a song like that, wouldn't you? Yeah, sing my song for me. Anyway, so he there is Angels by Robbie Williams. Coldplay sang about Jerusalem bells ringing. Missionaries in foreign fields, hear St. Peter call my name. Black Eyed Peas sang, Father, Father, help us send some guidance from above. And then you get Justin Bieber, don't you, who dared, I mean, he was quite good, I was really surprised how good he was. Um, But there he was, he dared to say at the end of one of his songs, God is good in the midst of evil. God is good in the midst of the darkness. He loves you. I don't know what what he thinks about that, but that's what he said. And then proceeded to get all the crowd going, love, love, love. Come on, why are you not joining in? Come on, there we are. What did the crowd do? It's interesting, isn't it? They all cheered. Despite the fact that statistics tells us that the majority of the crowd think nothing of the sort. One commentator called it worship in the church of therapeutic deism. Which basically means something like this. People want some kind of God. They believe God wants good things to happen. Good things are basically you know, whatever we feel is right at the time. That's the kind of therapeutic aspect to what he's saying. And then he's saying good people go to heaven. That's what that means. Like angels in Robbie Williams' song. The problem is, that's not the truth that God has revealed to us through his son and through his word. God doesn't say to people, oh, I'll make your life all nice and easy. God doesn't say, I'll take you away from the hard stuff in life. God does not offer some therapeutic arm around the shoulder. And likewise, Jesus never said that you cannot find anywhere. He says, if you trust me, I'll take you away from the struggles and the pains in this life. Nowhere you'll find that in Scripture. Quite the opposite. As we've been looking at in Mark's Gospel, what does Jesus say? As soon as uh, Peter recognises the crisis, he says, take up your cross and follow me. But the truth that Jesus does speak to Martha is far more wonderful and far more lasting than anything that was said on that stage in Manchester last Sunday. Jesus says, if you trust me, if you believe in me, I'm offering resurrection. Resurrection to an eternity where he make everything new. All death, all disease, all terror, all gone. 
everything made right. Jesus is not saying to Martha, I'll wipe away your tears and give you a nice warm feeling inside for a few moments with a glass of beer chanting love, love, love. No, Jesus is saying is he will utterly transform everything. There will be a resurrection. A total transformation that those who believe and trust him as Lord, that is king of their lives, will experience that for eternity. And Jesus says to Martha, do you believe this? As he says the same to us now. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And he died on the cross to take the justice that our rebellion deserves. If you think the Christian life is just about being good enough, a kind of reaching a kind of a mark of, of kind of, oh, I'm, I'm better than they are, so I kind of cross the threshold. If that's what you think, you do not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Christian faith. The Christian faith is is about recognising that we have nothing and we're trusting the one who has done everything and that offers everything in resurrection life. Do you believe? Are you willing to trust him with your life now? That he's king over it? That his wisdom rules now? And are you willing to trust him with your death? That brings the resurrection life. In a scenario of death and terror, Jesus again enters this situation with, with tears, yes, with that perfect love, but he also speaks truth, life-giving truth, and provides an answer, yeah, not, not the full answer to Mary and Martha's question, but an answer that in love offers love and life. So where is God when terror strikes? Where he's always been, offering resurrection life through the Lord Jesus Christ to anyone who would dare believe in him. It's very hard to speak truth though, isn't it? Particularly in the politically correct world in which we live and I think it's only going to get harder. But Christians, we must speak the truth in love, holding out to London and those around us the resurrection life available in Christ alone. And so Jesus enters this situation of death and terror with with tears and truth. But perhaps most surprisingly of all, he's also angered. Third thing, we see his anger. Look at verse 33. If you cast your eyes down there, you see our translation isn't particularly helpful here. There's, I think, quite an odd translation here. But we see that Jesus is deeply moved and deeply troubled. The word translated there, deeply troubled... Uh, In the original, uh, I'm sure Ash can help us out much more clearly than I can, but it's actually translated elsewhere to quake with rage. You see, when Jesus saw the women in tears, he was angry, he's actually raging. And likewise, if you just flick down to verse 38 as well, you'll see the, the phrase deeply moved occurs again. Literally, that should read something like, He's, he's roaring. It's used sometimes of animals when they snort. He's roaring, raging again, snorting like an animal. 
And I think we can understand what's going, you know, a progression that we see in a, probably in ourselves in situations of disappointment and terror and so on. That, that movement from our kind of hearts and our minds, it doesn't take Jesus long to go from kind of rational thinking and, uh, and proclaiming truth to uh, kind of emotional, to now anger. Surely we see that in ourselves sometimes. It's interesting, hasn't it? It's, been very, it's become very popular to say in these kind of situations, I'm not angry. You know, I'm not angry with those who slit the throat of my loved one on London Bridge. People kind of may think that might help them in some way. Really? Isn't that just weird and strange? If someone kills and slashes someone's throat, we should be angry. It's disgusting. And what does Jesus do with his anger? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? He's, he's not flinging blame around. He's not saying, oh, Mary, Mary, Martha, if you'd only sorted a few things out and got, you know, it's your fault. He's not, he's not flinging blame, is he? He's also not angry with himself. Oh, if only I, oh, no, no. So he's not angry with himself or looking out. He, what, therefore, is his rage fixed on? I don't know if you saw how quickly blame was being apportioned after last Saturday. Wasn't it hugely disappointing? Politicians blaming each other, whether from the left and the right, too many freedoms from one side, too much surveillance from the other side, you know, blame, blame, blame. It's all being thrown everywhere. Some more conservative religious types said it was judgment for the secular way of British life. Anger and blame is thrown about because someone has to be responsible, people think. Distance has to be created, doesn't it, between us and them. So you read headlines on Sunday or well, on Monday morning, who read of monsters of absolute evil on you know London Bridge. Do we forget who we are? What we're responsible for as a nation historically? We are not individually and as a nation above reproach. If you don't believe me, go to a city called Dresden in Germany. So Jesus doesn't blame the people in this account. He isn't angry with them. But we do need to know what he's angry about, don't we? I think it's pretty clear from the context of where we see his anger that he is angry about one thing. He is angry and he is mad at death itself. He looks at death and it deeply moves him. And what does he do? Well, he wonderfully turns that death into a resurrection. When Jesus enters that situation, it is transforming. And have you seen that it's a wonderful picture of the gospel, which is what the Christian faith is all about. How does Jesus respond to death and terror? He is angry, yes. He's rightly angry because he longs that we know life in him. His anger is inappropriately channeled, laying blame on others. Instead, he steps into this situation and transforms it with resurrection life. But what about us? When we see suffering, and what we've seen in this country over the last few weeks, should we be angry? 
Oh, we certainly should want to seek justice, not vengeance, the Bible tells us. Justice, yes. But we ought not to try and suppress anger, but we must be specific with it, not laying blame with others. We should be angry as we see people slaughtered on the streets. But like Jesus, we should seek transformation, which ultimately happens as we offer resurrection life through the Lord Jesus Christ by telling people how it is found through his word and through him. Yes, Jesus wept with those who wept. He spoke truth of this resurrection life and he raged against death. And the last thing Jesus brings into this arena of death and terror is grace. We didn't read it, but I want you to look forward, if you can, uh, to verse uh, 53, if you may, of chapter 11. It's just on the other page, 1079. We see there, uh, many of us who have been studying Mark's Gospel will understand this kind of trend. We see the religious authorities, they'd heard about what Jesus had done, and immediately we see, so from that day on they plotted to take his life. So Singer, we know this, that Jesus had become the most dangerous man to the religious authorities. And Jesus knew that before he did anything in this situation. Uh, to quote one commentator, I thought this was a very savvy little line. He said, Jesus knew that the only way to interrupt Lazarus' funeral was to cause his own. He knew that if he were to do anything, as he did with Lazarus and raise him from the dead, that would instigate a whole you know, barrage of, uh, of attack from the religious authorities. He knew it would take him to the grave. Therefore, from that alone, can you see what Jesus is willing to give up in order to bring resurrection life? He's willing to give up himself. It's an undeserved kindness, a grace. He's willing to sacrifice himself instead of us. I know for some this is perhaps a frustrating answer to the question we have in front of us today. You know, when God, where is God when terror strikes? But the truth is that the God of the Bible is so loving that he's willing to come into the world, a world where there will be more and more and more London Bridge terror strikes. The God of the Bible, you see, that we know, and we've seen revealed in the Word, uh, His Word, the Bible today, He is willing to come and be involved in suffering and death Himself. Christianity stands alone in all worldviews, in all world religions, in this way, because it, is, it tells us that God, well, God lost His own Son in an unjust terror attack. And when someone says that God doesn't care about our suffering, Where is God when terror strikes? What we know from history is that God was willing to suffer himself. And we don't know why he chooses to allow suffering in its entirety. But we do know that he's not distant from it. Rather, he's willing to enter into it. As he weeps with those who weep. As he proclaims truth to show the way to resurrection life. I don't know if you've ever tried to speak to someone who's lost someone. Part of my job. The thing about it is you never get it right. Sometimes you just want to cry with someone and they just want to hear some truth and then you do the complete opposite and you know, oh no, I've done everything wrong again. 
Look at Jesus, though. Gets it absolutely right, doesn't it? Jesus will always give you what you want and what you need if you'd only go to him and trust him. Where is God when terror strikes, therefore, as we close? I just want to encourage you to look at Jesus. I know it's not the full answer, but it is an answer and one with true hope. Look at Jesus and see his tears, hear the truth he proclaims. See his anger at death and receive his grace. That is the undeserved gift of himself that will bring about a transformation, a wonderful resurrection life for eternity. Jesus says in verse 26, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And our question to close is this. Do you believe this? We're going to have a moment. Um, why don't we turn to people beside it, um, ourselves and uh, just maybe if there's some point we want to ask uh, clarification on. Is there a question? Yes, I know I'm not fully dealt with it, and, but maybe there's something you want to ask. That's absolutely fine. I understand we've got a bit of time. Uh, we purposely finished in good time. So just a moment uh, just to chat to the person beside you. Is there any question that you'd like to ask or a point of clarification? And we'll come back.